Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean who just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service that's designed for those who want a simple way to store and serve vast amount of data, such as hosting website assets, storing user-generated content like images and large media files, archiving backups in the cloud and storing logs. Just like you're using S3, you can use DigitalOcean Spaces. And in fact, you can use S3 and DigitalOcean Spaces at the same time so you don't have a single point of failure. This is a standalone service, no droplet is needed, and pricing is extremely competitive. To make it easy to try for both new and existing DigitalOcean customers, you can get started today with a free two-month trial of spaces by going to do.co slash changelog. And by CircleCI. CircleCI is how leading engineering teams deliver value faster by automating the software development process using continuous integration and continuous delivery, you are free to focus on what matters most, which is building value for your customers. CircleCI is everything great teams need, support for any language that builds on Linux, configurable resources, advanced caching options, custom environments, SSH access, security through full level virtual machine isolation, interactive visual dashboard, first class Docker support, and more. Get started with their free plan, which gives you unlimited projects and 1,500 bills per month. Plenty to get started with. Head to circleci.com slash podcast. You're listening to The Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, editor-in-chief of Changelog. On today's show, Jared and I are talking with Miguel de Acaza live and in person at Microsoft Connect in New York City. We talk with Miguel about how he's been competing with Microsoft for most of his developer career. Miguel is the creator of GNOME, a desktop environment for GNU and Linux. Also, Mono, a cross-platform open source .NET framework in Xamarin, a platform to build iOS, Android, Mac, and Windows apps in C-Sharp and .NET, which was acquired by Microsoft in February 2016. Enjoy the show. Yeah, when I started with Linux, it was a, a very fringy thing. Um, like the 90s, what are we talking about here, time-wise? That's probably... I started using Unix, uh, it was around the Windows 3 era. Okay. Uh, that was the last time I used uh, Windows. And, uh, you know, every time you made a mistake on Windows and you would crash, you had to reboot the machine. Yeah. And uh, I, had a, I had a fancy IBM PlayStation. Well, the university had a fancy PlayStation, uh, not PlayStation, PS2, it was called PS2. Um, and it took too long to boot. And at the same time, the university got workstations, <clears throat> Altrix, deck stations, mm. and, and deck workstations. And the beautiful thing about that is you crash your program, and all you get is this label, segmentation fault, or core dumped. <laughs> and that's it. All right, well, let's try it again, right? So to me, it was magical, the fact that you didn't have to reboot. Like, oh, there was a bug, let's fix it right. next. So I had already moved to Unix, and at some point, uh, Linux became an option where I could run Unix on my PC. And I believe I had like a 40 megabyte hard drive. Mm. So I had to partition that to have 
a chunk on DOS where most of my work right. was right. done. To do a boot. And uh, the other piece uh, was Linux. And the challenge, and really uh, at the time there was another one, BSD. BSD was the big name. There had been a series of Dr. Dobbs articles about 386 BSD. And it was just around the time where uh, NetBSD had essentially made into a real thing. Mm. This was before the forks. And uh, we're right about the time that they forked between NetBSD and FreeBSD. And the problem was um, these BSDs didn't have dynamic libraries. So the nice thing about Linux is that they have dynamic libraries, shared libraries, right. which meant I could put it on my half a partition. Oh, you could fit it in the yes, space that you I had. couldn't put BSD on the little space that I could afford. Oh, I see. So I had to go with Linux. I uh, can't remember what my first distro. Maybe it was 8J loose, two floppy disks. Huh. Um, it's interesting it. how like what would, you would think would be kind of a, almost an inconsequential scenario where it's just like, I yeah. just don't have the space. Like that mm -hmm. was the deciding factor. Mm -hmm. But it would actually kind of change a trajectory for you. Yeah. You know, that could... I don't know if it was 40 megabytes or what was the thing that... It was a 386 uh, PC. I don't even know if it has a MatCop processor. And Linux had a 387 emulator at some point. I mean, I don't remember these things anymore, but uh, <laughs> but that's roughly <laughs> where I started. So it must have been 1991, 1992, perhaps, uh, in that era. It was in that general neighborhood. Um so I that got good. you into Linux. I mean, the question that that we have, which maybe a lot of people ask you, is how does the you know the original creator of GNOME come to work at Microsoft? It seems like that's a long story. Oh, it's a it's a long story. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, like I said, I've been uh, ever. I was inspired by the vision of Richard Stallman very early on, uh, before Linux on these Unix machines, because the because he was giving away an optimizing compiler, right? And in Mexico, we. Uh, you know, you could get Turbo C, but that was a chip compiler, or Microsoft C. At the time, it was also you know, a chip compiler. Mm. And if you really wanted to get your code running fast, you need to pony up for the expensive ones. I can't remember what they're called. I think it was a Portland C compiler or something mm. like that. There were a couple of commercial compilers, very high-end, and, uh, and they were very expensive. At least in Mexican pesos, it sounded like... The, the cost of a mansion. No way, yeah. And uh, he, a friend of mine came to me at the came to me with a big printout and said, here, here's how you, uh, the university had just gotten into the internet, and they said, here's how you, how you make your Unix machine useful. And uh, look for this GNU stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So you go through the list. It was a list of FTP sites, and it would say, this has X11, GNU, this, utils. Wow. So you would connect to a random FTP site, nose around. So you're like reading off of a print off and typing in the FTP addresses. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works. So the way, there was no Google, there was a printout, you know, sure. the 100 page printout, then you would pick the FTP site, it was called the FTP list or something. Um, ah. And, uh, and it, was, it was essentially kind of an index, the host name and what kinds of things they had, like two or three line description of each one. Uh, that's interesting. There they were, the GNU people giving away an optimizing compiler. Which other companies are making GCC. big bucks off of? And right? uh, I was like, "What? Why? 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 Why are you doing this?" Right. And then at the time, we started reading also some of the news and uh, the Usenet at the time, and or mailing list. I can I think it was called GNU Misc Discuss. Mm. And uh, here was this compiler that was uh, that was beating Sun's optimizing compiler. So, so I started reading the GNU manifesto and so on. So, uh, so ever since I decided I'm going to help the GNU project, maybe I can write code. At the time, I couldn't write code or wasn't you know proficient enough in Unix to do that. But I said, I'm going to go and help these guys. And I didn't have money because hey, you can contribute in two ways: give money 
or write code. Like, Time. Uh, well, the money is out of the question. <laughs> and the code, uh, I don't know Unix that well yet. So right. maybe one day. Anyways, uh, that's how it started. And I think my first, I can't remember if it was, uh, either I, I joined the wine project mm. and I was working with the wine project, writing the, you know, the any reader. I don't remember the, that format. So I don't remember my, the format. I remember using wine. Yeah. And, and try, so and, my know, first contribution was writing that thing. And then uh, and then it wasn't really GNU, but it was my thing. So I think I've been competing with Microsoft since 1991 or so. <laughs> <laughs> because come to think of it, I did the Mainnet Commander in 1992, and that was already kind of my second thing. Okay. It was more serious. So, yeah, maybe around 1991. And, uh, and I've been competing with Microsoft ever since. Um, started there, right, with the Windows emulation, right? right. We're going to bring those apps We're to gonna run open them on, sources. Exactly. We're going to run them on our system. And uh, uh, and then I worked for a while on uh, with the people doing open source Java. And, okay. and, you know, that was an interesting, lots of interesting lessons on the dynamics of the community um, there. And then... Uh, then the Linux kernel, I worked on for a while in the Linux kernel. I had this vision that workstations were going to be the future, that the Spark architecture, you know, was serious hardware, mm. as opposed to the toy PCs with their toy uh, hard drives and their toy CPUs and their toy memories. So I worked on that for a while. Uh, you know, one day a friend of mine is like, you realize that a PC with SCSI in a Pentium is, you know, 10 times cheaper and it's... Mm. Only half as as low. Like, huh? Oh, and I started to rethink. Oh, maybe, maybe workstations are not the future. <laughs> um, I had those experiences, but yeah, I've been competing with Microsoft uh, through all kinds of things. Uh, working in the Linux kernel, um, then uh, um, ports to the. You know, I worked on drivers for the Spark and the SGI and. Uh, work with Ingo Molnar before he was world-renowned, famous on the RAID drivers for Linux. Um, and then uh, kind of the next challenge was, well, you know, the kernel's in good hands. What about the UI? The UI was just terrible. So let's work on the UI and worked on GNOME for many years and uh, in the GNOME office piece uh, also for a while. Then Mono was, uh, we built this Outlook clone called Evolution. Okay. And we went through a lot of pain building it. And uh, we said, there's got to be a better way. And Microsoft came out with .NET. It's like, oh, this is this Pretty good, yeah. So I I kind of been working on .NET. Uh, by this time, it's like 2000 or 2001. I can't remember the year now. But um, uh, I, we started building .NET for the sake of building better Linux desktop apps. That was the goal. That was the reason. Uh, that was the reason. Yeah, it was because evolution. The, our our app is called Evolution because uh, the .NET tools were far superior to what you had. Yeah. So the history of GNOME is uh, around the time um, there was this fairly influential paper or pitch that was made by a professor called John Osterhout, and uh, he he designed and implemented this language called Tickle. Tickle TK. Tickle TK. Yeah, yeah. Tickle TK. Yeah. And uh, he's, he had a very powerful pitch at Usenix one year where he said, you know, this is uh, higher level languages achieve more productivity and fewer bugs than lower level languages. And uh, it's something that resonated with me a lot. And, and we wanted really to raise the programming level, right, and reduce errors and, you know, simplify our development, be more effective. If you're going to compete head on with Microsoft, you could do that. <laughs> uh, that's what you were doing. So uh, head on. 
but Tico was uh, he wasn't like you know it was it's a language with some uh, some you know some kinks. It was good for the time, um, and around that time, Richard Stallman says, you know, if we recompile Tico to Scheme, you're ten times faster. There was a paper going around that Jusnik's do that said, if you recompile everything to Scheme. Scheme automatically makes it fast. Hmm. And, you know, minds were blown. Then it turns out many years later that the measurements were all busted and oh. they benchmarked the wrong Broken thing. But anyways, benchmarks. it was enough at the time to say uh, two things. Let's use a high-level language and two, let's use Scheme. And the GNU project had their own Scheme interpreter called Guile. And man, so when we started the GNU, we said, all right, we're going to build a desktop and we're going to build the core foundation, the, you know, the high-performance or performance-sensitive code in C and the higher levels in a scripting language. And we started building some of the apps in Scheme uh, using uh, Guile, but it took forever to start up, hmm. right? Launching Guile would be like a four or five seconds to just to get the prompt, right? So it was way too slow. So it kind of became a thing in Gnome that we would, we would make our core APIs used in many languages. Uh, so Scheme was one, and sadly, the GNU project went into their, this way of developing where they work and work and work and never release. So, mm. uh, you know, it's not like Git where you can check out, right? So right. They would go dark and then you would get updates every mm. few eons. Um, like, are they coming back? Are they fading? <laughs> yeah, are they exactly. gone forever? So that was painful. So then we did Python and we did Perl. You know, all these things were essentially, how can we use a higher level language? Uh, there was even Objective-C. We even have Objective-C bindings for Chrome. Wow. And I think one of the first IRC clients is written in Objective-C for GNOME, if you can believe that. That's yeah, uh -huh. very strange. So that, that was kind of the genesis of, uh, of our thinking of we need to support more than one language. And what .NET made very interesting at the time was with scripting languages, they're incredibly powerful. Remember, this is the year 2000, no, 1997. So yes, they're powerful, but they're incredibly slow. I mean, these machines right. have, if you're lucky, you have eight megs of memory, if you're lucky. Right, uh, at least most students. I mean, I, I wasn't lucky enough. So eight megabytes was was uh, was plentiful. And then I was a sysadmin, so I managed to snatch a machine with sixteen megabytes. Right, but uh, uh, you know, scripting languages were just not very good. And Java at this point was proprietary. There were two versions: a proprietary version that was semi-licensed. There was a long story, not worth getting into it. And then an open source effort, but because there was one that was freely available but proprietary the open source one never caught on there was just no need for it mm, it's proprietary but free as in yeah no proprietary cost. but cost free right so the open source one struggled for many years to get traction so along comes that then we said well this is what we need it has the characteristics of a high level language but the performance of a low level language that's what the doctor ordered yeah and uh, and unlike java it very quickly took off because there was no free .NET. So either we built it or we didn't have it, right? So the community rallied around this thing. Yeah. And very quickly we built a community of people that essentially replicated uh, .NET. And that, that was a mono project. So, you know, I've competed with Microsoft all these years. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, there's ups and downs with mono, right? Mono kind of struggled to find a niche. Right, and the desktop it was useful, but then people feared that it well, was might like happen, a, right? Yes, there was a fear that Microsoft would do something, so it really set it back. So we said, all right, let's let's aim mono at the server. So we did mono for the server, but then the customers were Windows people. I was like, ah, I don't really know if I want to try Linux. So this is the era where Linux still hasn't really 
broken through, right? But at this point, uh, I think it's around 2006 and seven. Yes, Linux is starting to get juice, but it's not. It's still not dominant, right? It's still you still use Solaris for your serious deployments. Was there any? Uh, uh, was there a line of communication at all back in the earlier Mono days with Microsoft? Was it all just like they? There were communications with a lot of engineers. Okay, a lot of engineers, program managers, mostly in personal capacities, never in official capacity. Yeah, uh, and then IBM, Sam Ruby from IBM who later became a big Ruby person, oddly Sam Ruby, <laughs> um, had invited us uh, at, the, at the time, my previous company, to join the ECMA meetings because we had this implementation of .NET that we had built from specs. Okay. And they said, well, who better to join the ECMA meeting than somebody that actually has uh, implemented the specs to you know, iron out the details. So we did have contact through a lot of Microsoft people through the committee. I see. It was a common right. meeting ground around the spec. Yes, and this was around 2002, 2000. Wow, these dates look so far away now. <laughs> 2002. So, yeah, there was really no uh, no communication with Microsoft. So, like I said, Mono kind of struggled with this, you know, the community rejection for a few years. Uh, things got worse when, you know, there was an agreement between my employer, Novell, at the time, and Microsoft. So everybody's like, there was a big conspiracy theory. Yeah. So it was, a, it, it was in an odd place. It was an open source project. It was a great open source project with, with a difficult home, right? Yeah. It was a difficult, uh, we were, uh, you know, we were in the middle of uh, all these things. And then the iPhone happened. The iPhone happened. And uh, so here's what is interesting. Mono was sort of rejected by the, hor- of, by the harder line um, a free software open source community people on this this uh, this uh, this fear and uh, but meanwhile there were very pragmatic people outside of the Linux world like people in the Mac world that had no problem with it and one of those people were uh, Joachim Ante from a company called Unity okay it was called Over the Edge Entertainment at the time so Unity uh, had a game engine written. And they had a great, great game engine, and they used Python to script their games. And of course, it was too slow. So the games were very slow. So they ripped out Python, and they put the Mono VM in mm. place. And they got all their performance back. Nice. Right? So it became, it was the same struggle that we went through. And this was around, uh, I want to say, 2006 or so, roughly around this time. So there were a pragmatic group of people that had a genuine need for Mono. And there were many more, but Unity was a key one. Yeah. And when the iPhone happens, uh, Unity comes to us at this time, we're at the and say, hey, listen, um, help us put Mono on the iPhone. So we put Mono on the iPhone. And then Apple changed the way that you had to run on the iPhone, which was a very challenging problem for us because Mono was a JIT compiler. Hmm. And Which was dot, against the rules. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't at this point, but yes, it became okay. against the rule. It wasn't really against the rules. It's a kernel feature. So for security purposes, iOS and consoles like the PlayStation and the Xbox prevent you from JIT compiling. You know, it it doesn't make the system completely secure, but it eliminates a vast right. series of attacks, right? And the fear is when you have a million of machines that are identical, the same running the same software, you can create a bot army. You hack right. one, you hack all, right? So it was a security measure for these systems, and so we first put Mono in there. Very happy, the JIT compiler runs, and then Apple disables this, and Unity comes back to us and says, "Hey, we have this product on iOS. 
we need .NET to be statically compiled. Can you do that? We're like, oh, that's kind of impossible. Well, let's think about it. And <laughs> uh, and uh, one of our guys, you know, our team, and one of our guys, Zoltan Varga, uh, they went and made a static compiler for .NET, and it was amazing. We gave it to Unity, and at this point, Unity is probably four or five employees. Forty-five? So we, no, four, four or five. Four or five. Okay, four or five guys. I can show you that right. working at somebody's uh, garage. Oh. Um, and uh, they ship their product for iOS, build games for iOS using this thing, right? This 3D tech. They were the kings of the space. Nice. And within a year, my, uh, uh, Unity went from four or five employees at GDC, right? They had this booth on a, on a, on a you know, a nine by nine or five by five uh, space. And the next year they had one of the largest booths and they were... 80 employees. Wow. So this is like early days of the App Store. <coughs> Very like early days 08, of the App 09, Store. the time yep. period. Uh, yeah, I don't know when the App Store launched, but yeah, it was it was when the App Store launched. Um, so it was a very popular product. And we said, huh, well, we did more for these guys. Maybe there's interest in .NET, not for games, but for perhaps. Yeah. And the alternative was using Objective-C. So we built with the same technology that we gave Unity. We used it to build our own product. And it turns out that outside of the open source world, there really was no, um, nobody had issues with .NET technology. Yeah. Right? They all embraced it very quickly. So it was a very successful product. And that, uh, you know, that is the origin of what became Xamarin. And, uh, and at that point, um, you know, at that point, uh, this community, we, did, we really stopped worrying about the uh, fear of what could Microsoft do? And we kind of plot our own destiny. We said, well, people love .NET. They love the, I the iPhone. And then we did the Android version. And people love Android. There's, there's a big carrot, right? Before there was no carrot, right, with the servers. Like, well, Linux, I don't know. But now you have this big carrot. You can write code very effectively for these two platforms on C Sharp. And it's better than anything else. So, uh, so it took off. It took yeah, off. you had a winner in your hands. And then, so I would say that at that point, we sort of stopped competing with Microsoft because there was really no, I mean, we're building a product in the market that didn't really exist. It was no longer a, we'll bring Microsoft tech to Linux. It was, we're bringing Microsoft tech to iOS and Android and nobody really in that space. People were there to make money. They were not there to, you know, uh, fix the fundamental flaws and... <laughs> In, in yeah. society, idealistic right? reasons. There were yeah. capitalistic reasons to be in the. Yeah, outdoors. I mean, people were there to make money, and uh, so there were. A, it was a more pragmatic crowd. So, yeah, and uh, uh, I guess I stopped competing with Microsoft at that point, and uh, it was it was more like a very good complement to what Microsoft was doing. This episode is brought to you by GitLab and their Global Developer Survey for 2018. They're doing the survey to inform the larger population of developers all across the world about the needs of modern developers, their current satisfaction with management, tooling, workflows, trends at work, and more, perception discrepancies between developers and management, and most importantly, what high-functioning development organizations are doing differently. 
their 2016 survey uncovered that developers have a lot more say in choosing the tools they use, and often they were using tools their managers weren't even aware of. And this survey we're asking you to take was vetted by 10 internal GitLab engineers to ensure it's high quality and highly relevant to developers. Topics in the survey include developer satisfaction, open source technology, workflow and collaboration, CI, CD practices, and developer tooling and their preferences. If you have insights to share, we'd love for you to inform the global developer community and please consider taking the survey. The entire survey includes around 25 required questions and a handful of completely optional questions for you to share a short answer with more details. The survey takes around 15 minutes on average to complete and you can find it at about.gitlab.com slash developer dash survey. Once again, about.gitlab.com slash developer dash survey or check the show notes for a link. And by TopTow. TopTow is the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Josh Chapman, a freelance finance consultant at TopTow, about the work he does and how TopTow helps him legitimize being a freelancer. Take a listen. Yeah, in my arena within TopTal, I specialize in everything from market research to business plan creation to pitch decks to uh, financial modeling, valuation. And then that leads very naturally into fundraising strategy, capital raising strategy, investor outreach, closing a deal, deal negotiation, how to value the company, how to negotiate that. And all those skill sets that I have continued to hone over on the TopTal side are ones that I actually deploy every single day in my own company. Freelancing can sometimes be seen as not legitimate or subpar work. Now, I would argue that when you work with a company like TopTal, they put so much vetting into not only the companies that you work with, but also the talent that you work with, which I'm on the talent side, that it adds a level of legitimacy that isn't seen across other platforms. And that for me, as the talent side, is incredibly fruitful and awesome to be a part of, right? I enjoy the clients. I enjoy the other talent that I get to talk to. I enjoy the TopTal team. And that creates an overall positive experience, not only for for TopTal, but for me as the talent and for the client as the company on the other side. And that is really not seen or is the experience across other platforms in the freelance market. So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development, design, or finance, head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. For those wanting a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. personal demeanor towards the company because I mean when you say you're always competing but was it antagonistic or was it in good uh, spirit of competition I think it went through a, f- a few phases um, for example very early on very early on when I was uh, uh, you know I was a very big open source advocate um, and uh, I did all kinds of advocacy in Mexico and third world countries and and I had my pitch nailed to why you should use open source instead of. Can you use, remember some of it? Yeah, of course. I, I'll, I'll make it the pitch in, in a second. But um, pitches, I want to hear it. <laughs> you know, the, the pitch at the time was very simple. Listen, we're sending all kinds of money outside of the country for running proprietary software. Let's not do that. Let's invest that money 
in the country. Let's use open source. Let's build that stuff, right? And I used to say, listen, how much is that? You've seen a barrel of oil, right? So how many barrels of oil does a country need to ship outside to get a single license of a piece of proprietary software, right? Uh, it's a powerful image. Um, and, you know, the idea works great up until the point that you realize that people, uh, they're not going to send the money. They're going to spend it on something else or they're just not going to spend it. Um, so the idea that you would reinvest in the country didn't really pan out. People were not going to reinvest. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> that's, you don't have to spend the money, don't spend the money. They'll keep spend it on something else. Keep but, the money. You know, they the idea is we'll it. spend on education, we'll help our people, we'll, you know, we'll do these things. And right. that, that didn't serve. But anyways, that was my pitch at the time. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there would be places where they would, we would have a panel, why you should use Windows versus Linux, right? And, you know. You're you up should there. use Linux because. Uh, 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 uh. So I did advocacy, you know, uh, very yeah. serious advocacy for many years. Um, you know, this is 2006, 2004, um, a long time ago, very, very long time ago. So did you find 2001? You know, yeah, that was easy, right? You get Windows 95, you get Windows 2000, and you got Linux, right? Um, and then. Uh, just recently, I mean, it was really pretty recently, almost two, almost two years ago, which seems recently in the long span that Microsoft, you know, acquired Xamarin yeah. or, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what was your, once you were no longer competing with Microsoft, did the edge, you know, wear off or, or was well, it? Well, I think that there were two things, right? Um, there was the early competition in my, I would say almost, not teen because I'm older than that, but, <laughs> you know, in the Windows 95 era, right? right. 95 era, it's very clear. They have a great UI, but we have multitasking and we don't crash. Right. And we have, or you can use one Linux machine to be a server for everything. Right. One PC can do it all. It was amazing. Right. Um, so that was one kind of one era of advocacy, the one that I described. And then there was the uglier era when uh, open source kind of becomes a brand. And there, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, there were the Halloween papers, which were internal Microsoft documents that says, how do you compete with something like Linux? I don't right. remember that. Uh, they were kind of a big scandal because they got annotated. I, I, you know, I don't think it was a. In retrospect, I don't think they were ever, you know, very serious documents. But somebody in a, in a massive organization wrote papers, saying, "Hey, well, this is how you do it." And, you know, you write dozens of these things continuously, right? There's a lot of internal, yeah, memos. But it of... became seen from the open source perspective. It was seen as like, "Oh my God, this is the right, you know, this evil is empire." The, yeah, kind of like that. And and it was seen that way. Um, and that didn't foment a environment, uh, uh, you know, a great environment. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there was this notion, the press was, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft is toast, Windows is not going to exist, Linux is going to, you know, it's going to take over the whole world, right? Right. So there were a lot of very nervous people, and uh, in particular, the previous CEO, uh, you know, was fairly antagonistic toward Linux for many years or took an antagonistic position towards uh, Linux and the GPL. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, uh, A, it's a little bit like that uh, that diagram of uh, that, I don't know, it's one of these analyst firms that use the, 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 the hype, the, 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 the hype, uh, the hype graph. Mm. Right, where you have exceeded expectations. And then it comes and, back down. And, and then, it comes back down. And then once you understand, it's like, oh, everything is terrible. And the, trough kind of of, understand the trough it. of sorrow. Yeah, the <laughs> trough of uh, despair or something yeah. like that, right? So what happened is that over the years, the hype, that the hype of what was open source, eventually people understood what it was. And, you know, both us and the industry, right? Both yeah. us, the advocates and the industry, and we understood 
what it was and what it could do and what it couldn't do and where it worked well and where it didn't work well, mm-hmm. right? Even Red Hat went through this process, right? So, um, so I think that the thinking internally at Microsoft started to change and Microsoft started to open source a lot of things yeah, bit by bit, right? Somebody was uh, asking yesterday, what are the things that Microsoft open source? And, and they were kind of thinking towards 2010. It's like, no, no, there's stuff that went back to, to 2006, 2005. Oh, they, really? did, they did little bits, right? They did little pieces. Um, Testing the waters. Testing the waters. Uh, Those might have even been you know, somewhat grassroots efforts inside of the company back then. I think they were grassroots efforts. There were people inside the company that believe in the model and yeah. they push for the model or and they make a case. And I think that at the time, making a case was very tough, right? The environment was not necessarily supportive. Now is uh now it's it's very straightforward to open source a piece of tech at Microsoft. There's a there's a pipeline, a review process, uh, very straightforward business needs. You know, you fill in a form, your manager approves it, off you go. Done. Right? Basically, yeah. Uh, you know, you need to make a case that you're not doing something. Uh, you know, I can't just go and fill in a form to open source Windows, right? But sure. yeah. if I write some code, I can certainly do that. On that note, there was uh, one point in your career you mentioned. I think it was when you were being interviewed, I think, earlier on in your career mm-hmm. towards Microsoft. And yeah. you had, uh, you know, on this advocacy of open source, you mentioned that they should open source IE. And this is way back in IE's life frame, uh-huh. lifetime. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and you were kind of using Netscape as a case study of like, hey, this is what they're doing. Can you kind of well, pontificate? The, yeah, no, Netscape actually happened later. They were not open sourced at that point. Um, yeah, there wasn't, I, I had an interview with Microsoft. Um, I was working on Linux on the Spark. Supporting Linux to the Spark. So a friend of mine, Randy Chapman, uh, said, "Hey, there's a you know we're working on uh, on porting IE to to the Spark. Uh, you know, under interviewing here, you wanna you wanna come?" And I came and I interviewed with the people. Um, I don't know who who interviewed me anymore, but uh, they uh, you know I made my pitch. You should make IE open source. That was my pitch, right? Make this open source. There's all the benefits, and I think they just said, uh, "All right, whatever, dude." Mm. <laughs> So, so we heard a story that. Uh, but remember, this is 1997, right? And Mozilla doesn't go open source until 1999, right? At this point, Mozilla is still proprietary. Well, we've got alternate, uh, I guess, influences on this side too. We got Brendan Eich on on record talking deeply yeah. about the funding of the browsers mm-hmm. and the funding of the web through. And I'm only paraphrasing uh, this big story he knows very intimately, but just the the browser wars and ads and how everything has been paid for, essentially. Uh, Long story short, but I'm trying to figure out if you've got some sort of idea of how IE or even Microsoft might be different as a company, and maybe even how we may be different had they done what you said, because they didn't. That's so difficult. That's that's one of those hypotheticals that are very tough to answer. (laughs) I mean... Remember, at this point, I was a very strong advocate. This is my, my hardcore years of advocacy. And, uh, and coming to Microsoft was kind of, I'll go to Microsoft if I can change the company from the inside, right, kind of thing. Um, so and I wish, I, I wonder if HR still has notes on that. I wonder if I, <laughs> we can dig those up. That'd be awesome. But essentially, the, you know, that was my pitch. We got to make this open source, right? And, uh, and, you know, I think that the people that I was talking to, you know, they were probably engineering managers, like, whatever. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay, go and do a link list on the board, right? I don't know what we did. <laughs> go and do a link list. Yeah. Solve this program. Before go do this link list on the board. Um, so, so when you say interviewing, like you mean to work there? Hmm? 
you're interviewing to work there. Yes, that's right. And you're trying to tell them to open source. Yeah. So you're giving them like high level strategic advice during your interview to yeah, work. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, he said if he's going to go there, he's going to change. Well, I, the I realize that. But yeah, when I first said, when you first said interview, I was just thinking it was like an interview like this. Like, right, right. But it makes, that makes it yeah. even funnier that, I mean, you were in that sense, very hardcore advocacy. Fast forward to today, like, yeah. are the things that you, inside of, you know, the industry and software, are the things that you care about with that level of passion now that are different? Or is that like a young man's, you know, energy that uh, slowly subsides? Well, I mean, uh, I still care very passionately about the, you know, there's things that I care about in tech and things that I care about in outside of tech. Sure. And I think that my uh, advocacy and my heart breaks for, uh, for all the disasters in the world, mm. right? So, you know, if, if you follow my tweet for years or my blog, you'll see that there's a particular series of injustices that have, you know, Palestine has always been in, mm. this has always been a very sad story. Um, so, you know, I still care about those things. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I think they got really the short end of the stake, but there's countless other uh, problems in society that need to be solved. And, uh, and, you know, we have a lot of really smart people and uh, we should be fixing those issues. Mm. So I think that the the passion and the desire to go and fix those things uh, is there. Having kids certainly doesn't leave a lot of time to, you know, sign up for doing talks and advocacy in places. But, you know, uh, there's, a, uh, you know, one of my co-workers, uh, Nevedin, uh, she runs the Indivisible Somerville organization. And, you know, they're doing all kinds of very interesting social changes in our community, right? They start there and, uh, and uh, they take it elsewhere. But, uh, you know, I think that just having a family kind of takes a toll on your time mm. for doing some of the more advocacy things that you want to do. On the tech world, um, I would say before I go there that one thing that was very interesting is that the new CEO is very different, right? Satya Nadella. Mm -hmm. And not only he embraced the change in Linux and open source of these things, but he is, uh, as a, you know, as an individual, is uh, deeply empathetic, right? He relates to other people and he tries to get himself in other people's shoes and try to understand their perspective. So from the tech perspective, I like to think that we can do more in our software to be more empathetic. And, you know, I think that it shows beautifully, for example, uh, with Apple products, because they're products that people love to use, right? They work for the user, not against the user. And it's a, it's, it's a different mindset that the raw engineering perspective of, I'm going to build a piece of great software, going to be very fast, very efficient, very, very something, right? very configurable, very uh, programmable, you know, it's going to be the Swiss army knife. And, and as it turns out, there's a time for the Swiss army knife and there's a time for just, um, uh, you know, a bottle opener, right? <laughs> right? Sometimes a, all you need is a bottle opener. A single purpose tool. Yeah. And, uh, and so in tech, I kind of care passionately about how can we make our tools better, simpler, more accessible, more easier to use? Uh, how do we make developers happier, right? It's been kind of a motto for our company, for Xamarin, it was definitely. And uh, we tried to bring that culture, which is how do you delight developers, right? So how are developers struggling and what can you do to get out of their way? Now, and I, I have to say, uh, I'm guilty as much as anybody else. We've built tools that are sometimes too complex. And how do we remove the complexity? How do we make 
our tools simpler, right? So I would say from that perspective, my I changed from advocacy from licenses, which is you know it's a it's a done deal. It's a it's a battle that has been won, right? And 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 I really try to look for inspiration on design, right? Uh, and what can we do for the user? And I'm saying design because uh, now when I work with other teams, or companies, partners, people inside the company, uh, we still have a mentality, all of us, where if we need to build a solution, we're go we start coding right away. Okay, let me architect this, log in, I'm gonna put this in the database, it's gonna go here, I have a screen, I roughly know where it goes, things go. So you go through this process, and then and then your user experience is miserable, right? right. So I do like this. Uh, I do like the idea of you know let's first sit down and try to understand what problem we're trying to solve. Let's design. Let's let let's let's uh, let's design on paper. Yeah. Right. Let's uh, think about it first. Yeah. And and I, uh, you know there was an employee of mine. Well, not an employee, of mine, a coworker of mine uh, for many years ago, Anna Dirks, that started this at our uh, our previous company at Novell, and she would prototype on paper. And at the beginning, I was like. Why are you doing high tech on paper? Right, we're software engineers. We don't do paper. Uh, but uh, you know, she was a big influence because she would meet with customers and she would show them, okay, here's a UI that I've drawn on paper. Here's a menu. What would you do next? Mm. Well, I would click here. Wow. All right. What do you do? And she would put post-it notes. Right. So now this is a button. What do you do here? Right. And uh, and the nice thing is that it's super cheap. Yeah. To prototype on paper, oh, yeah. right? What does it cost? Like a couple of cents in a pen? Yeah. Right? It's real time. It, there's no there's And no then bugs. you get a mock-up. At the end no of the bugs. day, you spend one work no day. No crash. No seg fault. Yeah, one work day, you get mock-ups, and then you refine them a little bit, right? And then you got good design. And by the time you're implementing, you're not writing and rewriting and rewriting yeah, you're and informed. customizing. And when somebody says, well, you should add this buzz, like, well... If you want me to wire that up, I gotta change everything. It's like, yeah, you know. So, uh, you know, as engineers, we have to embrace this world where we can think first about the user. You know, show some empathy, right? right? That's uh, that's what I like about Satchez and his whole pitch in his book, the Hit That Five Refresh. Right? Is uh, we gotta do, uh, uh, you know, get into your user shoes and try to do what they're gonna do. And save yourself a lot of time, a lot of engineering by knowing what you're going to do. So I, I care a lot about that. I don't know that I communicate that always mm. as well as I could, even to my team, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, that's hopefully one thing this I podcast do. with us just, will influence that. Just a little tell bit. your team to listen to the change log. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah well, change log. We, can, we can do that, <laughs> or you can talk to him, that. or you can talk that. to him directly. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's your team. We'll tell you how to manage. I'll tweet. Okay, guys, we're going to make things easy. Yeah. Well, just when you when you talk about that, uh, especially when you say the Xamarin, like the focus on um, on you know the users are the developers, and so mm -hmm. let's design for them. You know, it reminds me of Matt's uh, with the Ruby programming language. His design yeah. philosophy, like I feel like yes. his his statement of like I'm going to design for programmer happiness will be his legacy even more so than the language that came from that because languages come and go but like that i've seen that philosophy yeah. embraced and it resonates so well with all of us it's like mm -hmm. yeah we should do that that's 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 mm -hmm. empathetic mm -hmm. that's powerful um and so you know that idea i love it being such a meme because as it spreads yeah we all benefit and if the developers are more empowered more you know able to do things enlightened design for delighted sorry yeah. not yeah, yeah, yeah. delighted sure then they're gonna you know hopefully that's a 
a pay it forward type of a thing. They're going to be yeah. more able to build things for other people in such a way. So I, I think that we need to become more rounded individuals, right? Where you you know, the software engineer should say, where's the design? Help me, help me not waste my time. Tell me what I'm building or why, you know, what are the expectations and why? here? Yeah. Uh, you know, perhaps I also care a lot about the fact that sometimes we write code with no documentation. Mm. You know, engineers are really, they have this thing where they're like cats in water, right? They don't want to write docs. Cats in water. They don't like it. Cats don't like to yeah. write documentation well, I don't know how either. cats are in Nebraska, <laughs> but cats on the East Coast. They don't like water. They don't, they don't like, like water. water. That's so how you like, say they don't like to write documentation yeah. in engineers water. Engineers on the East Coast and, uh, and, and documentation is like, <laughs> You know, they do it. They <laughs> Only if I have to. Yes. Only gotcha. my boss forces me to, and then I'll drag my feet, right? And engineers are very good at coming up with excuses, right? Um, yeah. It's like, I'll document it. I, I'm still changing things. So I'll document it when it's fully ready. And then by the time it's ready, it's like, what happened? And then they go, well, do you want me to document or do you want me to work on the new right. future? I ran out of time. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's magical. And it happens every time. <laughs> it's magical. Anyway. Uh, uh, I guess my last question for me is, um, surely you do a lot of conversations like these. Is there, is there a question or a topic or a thing that you just, you know, you're just waiting for somebody to ask it to you so you can answer this thing or talk about this particular thing, but nobody ever does. At my age, uh, you know, <laughs> every question is a good question. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, you don't have any. You don't have anything to get off your chest or anything that you just want to talk about. No, not really. Okay. I mean, I, I guess uh, no, not really. I don't have uh, anything to get off Fair my enough. chest. Fair enough. Let me close with one thing. Okay. So, um, what has been fabulous is in this new Microsoft, just how much open source code is written by Microsoft and contributed to Microsoft to the point that you know. I the other day I saw the stats and it's like they're they're you know these ginormous numbers. I think GitHub published them. Mm -hmm. Microsoft, I think, is now the number one contributor by some metric. I don't know what it is. I don't right. know what it, if, if the number matters anyways. It's so much code that... It's an indicator of change. Uh, it is anything. an indicator of change, yes. And, uh, and I am very happy that .NET went from being the crown proprietary jewel of Microsoft to, to now be open source. Mm -hmm. And that Microsoft was willing to let go this fabulous developer technology and their incredibly sophisticated compilers and runtimes and garbage collectors. I mean, and they went with a license that is beyond generous. It's just MIT is, it's a gift to the world. Yeah. Uh, and it took uh, years of work of many people inside and outside and uh, advocacy and discussions. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's thanks to be given to everyone that made that happen. And, and .NET, now is uh now it's everywhere <laughs> you know hmm. it runs from my watch to my phone to the servers to the Azure supercomputers uh, we have it running WebAssembly too I mean it runs on everything it's um it's just WebAssembly too huh yeah yeah we got WebAssembly too now mm. um, so it's it's everywhere it's and uh, you know it's a fantastic effort uh, and I hope uh, you know I hope we can get more people building software there I mean our goal is always you know, going back to this theme from 20 years ago, right? The goal is, or well, maybe less, 17 years ago is, we want you to write good software. We want to catch errors for you. We want your, your software to be of high quality. How can we help you? Mm. And, uh, 
and that's the that's a mission, right? That's what uh, that's what the entire developer division of Microsoft does, right? Uh, that's a mission, and um, and I think we're you know I think we're making a good dent in society that way. All right, thank you for tuning into this special episode of the Change Law. We did this show in New York City, Times Square. Thanks to Microsoft for inviting us up there. It was a blast being in New York and getting to see the behind the scenes of Microsoft Connect. What a well-run, excellent conference for them and their developer community and all the announcements they had. So much happening. Uh, it's a new Microsoft. If you enjoyed this show, share it with a friend, rate us an Apple podcast, and thank you to our sponsors, CircleCI, DigitalOcean, GitLab, and TopTile. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. The changelog is hosted by myself, Adam Stokowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is done by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you hear on every single show is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.